It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Good morning, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. As always, great to be with you today. We're going to talk about inflation and gas prices and Joe Biden's apology tour and the root causes of inflation. I love this stuff. They're saying, well, gee whiz, we're sorry. We are sorry that we didn't pay enough attention to inflation. They're about 15 months too late. Inflation rate, as you know, the CPI is above 8%, and uh, wholesale business prices are above 11%. And we celebrate today, it ain't much of a celebration, but, 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 we've now got a doubling of gasoline prices, a doubling. Inauguration day was $2.38. Currently, it's $4.76, just about a doubling. And uh, Americans are very angry at this. And the question is, could it have been prevented? And that's where Mr. Biden, who wrote an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal. That's a you know big deal when you have a statement like that. And his uh, senior staff people, let's see, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, going out on her apology tour. One of the videos we showed on the Fox Business show, Cudlow, it, I mean, it looked, it looked like a hostage video. Remember those hostage, awful hostage videos where the terrorists would hold you know, an American, and then the American would would say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I was wrong, America's not good, America's horrible, and I pledge allegiance to ISIS or whatever, Al-Qaeda, and you know, the person would get his head cut off. That's what, that's what Yellen looked like, a hostage video. And her message was really no different than Biden's message, and that is... Blame Vladimir Putin. It's the Putin price hike, they call it. And before that, they blamed greedy corporations. Greedy corporations, especially energy companies, poultry companies, drug companies, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Blame all the companies for price gouging and excess profits. Putin and, and Proust gouging, and of course, energy companies. And there's nothing we can do. That's what the president said yesterday at a press conference after the jobs report. There's nothing we can do, really. Really? Really? How about increasing the production and the pipelining of oil and gas? How about that? Which from day one they didn't do going all the way back to Inauguration Day, ending the XL pipeline. This woke administration, this progressive, big government socialist administration, from day one, January 20th, 2021, when he became president and was inaugurated, has done everything they can to stop the drilling and fracking to produce more oil and gas, and the pipelines to distribute, to transport the oil and gas to your gas station, in effect. You can think of it that way. It's a more arduous process. 
They won't allow new refining operations either. They won't get permits for any of this stuff, whether it's drilling or pipelining or refining or new LNG export-related terminals. No permits, right? They ended just recently. They refused the lease for a big Alaska fine for Gulf of Mexico, by the way, which is really cheap cheap oil. The break-even is, you know, for profit, the break-even is only about $30 a barrel. Anyway, they stopped Anwar. They've stopped Willow in Alaska. They've stopped the Gulf of Mexico. But they blame Putin, not themselves, for gasoline prices. And Americans, rightly so, are furious, okay? Rightly so, furious. And here's the thing. Biden keeps telling us, he did it again yesterday, he did it in his op-ed PC. He keeps saying, he keeps saying, you know, we're going to explain to you the root causes of inflation because we're so worried about it. We want you, the public, to understand the root causes. And then they go on ahead and blame Vladimir Putin and energy companies and drug companies, etc., etc., etc. It's a full-bore campaign to hide the real cause of inflation. Okay? And the real cause of inflation is essentially twofold. And I think most Americans know this. The first is they never should have put in the so-called Emergency Relief Act, the $2 trillion way back in March and April of 2021, okay, a little more than a year ago. Never should have done it because the economy was very strong, because the Trump corporate tax cuts were working and throwing off massive amounts of revenues, beating all the estimates, paying for themselves. The economy was coming back. Taxes had not been raised. One of the lies, falsehoods, in Biden's op-ed piece that was in the Wall Street Journal, what, I think Wednesday or something, Tuesday or Wednesday, is that the economy was stalling. And they had had this big $2 trillion spending package. Well, the economy was not stalling. In the first quarter of 2021, which is what they inherited from Trump, the economy grew by 6.3%. That's a big number, real GDP. There was no stall. What you had was this massive progressive social spending program that they wanted to put in place and massive spending on so-called Green New Deal projects, wind turbines and solar panels and electric cars, batteries, huge subsidies, throwing pork everywhere. It's old-fashioned democratic pork, welfare pork, the welfare state pork by the way, with no work requirements whatsoever. You know, it turns out all this pork, I remember the debate about unemployment benefits, unemployment benefits. So we find out later that roughly $165 billion went to fraud. Not people who needed it, fraudulent people who lied on their applications, foreigners, China, Russia, other places, they got it. Complete fraud, waste, fraud, and abuse. Anyhow, 
with the economy strong, they did a fiscal drop of nearly $2 trillion. And, of course, that increased demand. Helicopter money from the sky. And they financed it by selling bonds to the Fed, the Federal Reserve, our central bank, who bought the bonds and increased. They, buying the bonds, they put even more cash into the economy. It's like a double. The federal government is spending. The central bank is printing money. So they increased demand. And at the same time, they're cutting back on the supply of oil and gas and the distribution of oil and gas through the pipelines and the new terminals for LNG. So too much money chasing too few goods. Increasing, massive increases, a big federal money drop to increase the demand. And meanwhile, they shut down the supply because of their crazy climate change ideas, the Green New Deal ideas. And there is no existential climate risk. I mean, it's funny, Janet Yellen used that a lot, existential climate risk. She used that to sell the big spending package. She hasn't taken that back. She's apologized for inflation, but she, like her boss, blamed Putin. Putin. Well, no. How about your own woke fiscal policies? And you had, oh, we didn't know, they say. Nobody could pre- predict this, they say. Well, it's another falsehood. Just a flat-out lie, because actually, Democratic economists, like Larry Summers, like Jason Furman, like Steve Ratner, and others were warning them a year ago that this was a big mistake, that they were going to overheat the economy. And they just made it worse. Not only did they drive it through with a one-vote reconciliation package, no, no bipartisanship. In 2020, the Trump administration had bipartisan COVID rescue packages. In 2021, there was no bipartisanship. So meanwhile, the Democratic economists were warning it would cause inflation, increasing demand through too much money, chasing too few goods, shutting down, putting a wet blanket over the fossil fuel sector. So here we are with a doubling of gasoline prices. Here we are with an 8 to 10% inflation rate. Here we are with real worker wages falling, adjusted for nominal wages are rising, Folks have come back to work, and they're working hard, and I'm glad of it. But unfortunately, the government's high inflation has taken their money away. And it's damaging retirement savings. All this could have been avoided. But here's Biden repeating. He says, I want to tell people the root causes of inflation, which is essentially to blame Vladimir Putin, the fossil fuel industry, and American businesses. It's just utter nonsense. A pack of lies, presidential falsehoods seldom seen. It's like, go back to the debates in 1980, Reagan versus Carter. Carter was like this little puppy dog, always biting Reagan's ankles with falsehoods. Throughout that debate, one after another, And finally, Reagan turns to Carter and says, there you go again. And the crowd loved it. Reagan won the debate. 
his elected president, and the rest is history, but it's good history because he launched a multi-decade boom with his tax cuts. Anyway, he's slight inflation. The point is right now we're in bad, bad history. Joe Biden's doing everything he can to obscure the root causes of inflation, which must be traced back to his own woke economic policies. And fortunately, I mean, it would have been a lot worse if his $5 trillion Build Back Better plan had gone through. But we saved America and killed that bill. But Biden wants to bring that bill back again. He's trying to tell folks the deficit's coming down. Well, it's coming down because revenues are exploding and because the emergency programs are now coming, uh, are now expiring. But if he had his way and got his $5 trillion plan, the deficit would be ballooning again. So that's another falsehood. The problem is his whole administration is in big trouble. The problem is he will not level with the American people. He will not own his own mistakes. And if you don't own it, you're never going to solve it. And he's never going to solve it. That's why he's going to be a one-term president. That's why the cavalry's coming and the Democrats are going to get their keisters whooped come this November. That's why gas prices have doubled. It's a big problem. And we'll talk some more about it as the show goes on. We've got a whole bunch of experts. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And listen, folks, you can live stream us over the Internet. It's called LarryKudlowShow.com. You can listen to us all across the country and around the world and throughout the solar system. Biden will do everything he can. I just want to summarize. He will do everything he can to hide the real cause of inflation. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So there he goes again. President tries to hide the real cause of inflation, blaming it on Vladimir Putin and American companies. Today, we're doubling the gas price from his inauguration. A double from $2.38 to $4.76 and a lot higher in the West Coast and a lot higher in New York State and other places in the Northeast because of their greeny policies to stop fossil fuels. Um, By the way, the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank put out a study not too long ago and showed that the core inflation rate, now that's kind of a phony, you know, take out food and energy. Anyway, people (laughs) eat food and and need uh, gasoline for energy. Food prices are skyrocketing, we know that. But anyway, economists... And their models. So the San Fran Fed looked at this, and it turns out that our United States core inflation rate is about five percent, whereas all the so-called OECD big countries, the industrial countries around the world, are averaging two percent. We're at five; they're at two. Why is that? Well, everybody did some pump priming, but we did twice and three times the pump priming that these other places did. So once again, he will Biden will not own it, even though the numbers show that we are the worst case of inflating our economy and the workforce is suffering. The other amusing thing that happened yesterday, uh, 
what the president said press conference telling people, by the way, there's nothing he can do about food and uh, and gas prices. Nothing he can do. Of course, that's just a falsehood because we could be opening the spigots. You know, speaking of oil, oil production, we are still now one and a half million barrels per day less than we were pre-pandemic. One and a half million less. That is because of the wet blanket thrown over the fossil fuel industry. So that's something you could do. Open the spigots, Mr. President, and pipeline it to the gas stations. So Elon Musk took a shot. All right, Musk himself sees a an economic downturn. All right, he's a smart guy. He's my hero. Free speech, Elon Musk. Musk said... Uh, Musk said the Democrats have become the mean party, the party of hate and division, and he's voting Republican. He's also buying Twitter on behalf of free speech. So Musk goes out and says he has a super bad feeling about the economy, (laughs) super bad feeling. I I don't know if he's right. I don't have a great feeling about the economy either. High inflation is going to lead to recession at some point in the next year or two. The Fed's going to raise interest rates a lot. Biden then tries to mock Elon Musk. You know, he said, good luck on your trip to the moon. Good luck on your trip to the moon. The only problem with that is Musk tweets back that uh, the U.S. government, NASA, the space agency, has given this, uh, what, $2.5 billion contract to Elon Musk's SpaceX as uh, the lead in developing and executing the moon landing that's on the uh, on the table so he's Biden's mocking Musk but his own NASA has given Musk the contract to get us to the moon private sector private operations to the moon it's a tremendous story and then of course Musk has non-union factories And Biden can't stand that because Team Biden wants unionization everywhere, even though those work rules and high costs do a lot of damage to production and slow down the economy. So you have Musk versus Biden. On this one, I'm taking the over on Musk, and I'm taking the under on Biden. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to have Tomas uh, Phillipson up next, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, to talk about Joe Biden's apology tour. And the fact is, is it true he can do nothing? Who's to blame for this? It's Team Biden whose administration is crumbling. Before our eyes, their administration is just crumbling. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And to dissect the Biden inflation plan we bring in my pal tomas phillipson who is former chairman of the white house council of economic advisors under president trump he's a professor of public policy at the university of chicago tomas thank you for coming on good to hear your voice again larry so uh i'm looking at uh, the wall street journal op-ed page may 30th that's just a couple days ago i think it was wednesday or Tuesday, Joe Biden, my plan for fighting inflation. 
Okay, my point—it's he. Best I can tell, he's saying, "Well, we're going to have the Federal Reserve, and then he wants to have more subsidies and spending, build back better, maybe a junior version of build back better." But that's all I could find in his plan. So you're much smarter than I am. Maybe you can have more insights into the Joe Biden plan for fighting inflation. By the way, Tomas, yesterday he said there's nothing he can do about high gas prices. I just want to add that. So go ahead. How'd you like his plan yeah, for fighting um, inflation? My tagline is becoming, having the White House fight inflation is like having an arsonist shut out of fire, basically. So, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> here, so, for example, uh, when he talks about, he keeps coming back to this, that he's trying to make things affordable to people in this inflation environment. But the way you make things affordable, affordable is through subsidizing demand, which presumably raises prices, whether it's health care, child care, or even student loan, etc. The second thing it does is we're going to have Nixonian price controls, in this case on drugs, to stem off inflation, which I think everyone agrees on, both on the left and right, that that is not a good way to fight inflation. And the last thing I think that's misleading is that he keeps saying that, you know, this Putin surge in energy prices, which is really owned, I think, by Biden as opposed to someone. So it's owned by the White House as well. It's not something they can deflect to because it's just a, a failure of foreign policy as opposed to domestic policy, I think. Because, you know, they invaded Ukraine under Obama, they stopped under Trump, and they invaded under Biden. So common sense would tell you that Trump got something right in stopping invasions. And and uh, this invasion under occurred under the so-called <clears throat> diplomacy approach, a lack of, you know, peace through strength. And I think he can't shy away from owning that in some sense. And, uh, and I think, we you know, we're not done. I mean, China is opening up now this week. You know, Shanghai is opening up and uh, Russia is being more shut out. So demand is going up. Supply is going down because Russia is being more aggressively shut out by Europe. Presumably both things will raise prices in the future. But the White House is insistent in that those price increases are not high enough because they want to push us even into more expensive energy, which is green energy. And green energy has not innovated down in cost for the market to get rid of fossil fuels. Once that occurs, the market will get rid of fossil fuels a lot quicker than governments are trying to do it. But that innovation has not taken place yet. And therefore, this prevention of global warming through pushing people into more expensive energy is really something damaging that a lot of people, you know, Nordhausen, and others have talked about being the cost of prevention of climate change is much higher than the cost of climate change, climate change itself in some sense. So I think, you know, on a lot of fronts, he's being very, very counterproductive, even to his own objectives. You know, even, uh, well, two things, Tomas. You mentioned no, no Russian invasions or adventurism under Trump. If you look back, uh, during the Bush administration, during the latter part of George W. Bush's administration, the price of oil went to about $150 a barrel. 
And yeah, that was like in 2008 or something. Man. That's correct. And, it, you know, it yeah. ramped up in 07, and then it hit the peak in 08. And guess what? Putin invaded Georgia. You know, he took Georgia with high yeah. oil prices to finance his war machine. Then we r- run through the Obama years, and Obama had a spike in oil prices, I don't know, $100 a barrel, some such. And here's Putin taking the extra cash, right, from oil uh, oil sales, and he picks off Crimea. He doesn't do a thing with Trump because oil prices during the Trump years, I'm going to say, Tomas, $50 a barrel average, okay, because the spigots were turned on and, you know, Trump wanted energy independence and succeeded. So now under Biden... Under Biden, before Putin comes in, oil prices move up to $80, $90 a barrel, almost $100 a barrel, and he invades Ukraine. My point is, if you try to you know, stop oil drilling and oil and gas production, you're playing into Putin's hands. He takes the extra cash. It's really his only cash crop. He takes the extra cash, puts it into his military, and uh, starts invading. The, to me, the, more, the moral of the story is uh, high oil prices help Russia, low oil prices hurt Russia. The only way to do it is to open the spigots, which Biden has essentially closed. That's the way I see it. Correct. I mean, there's two, there's two forces you're saying. There's not only the foreign policy differences with strength versus diplomacy, there's also the energy policy differences right. that, that basically make the difference, you're saying. And both are operating in the same way, I think, uh, and, and pushing. One is making Russia richer, which is the energy policy. And the second is making Russia more uh, prone to not fearing any retaliation, which is the foreign policy part. Yeah. So I think both are kind of operating in the same direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the weak foreign policy plays plays right into that. Um, so, Tomas, the um, other thing that's so interesting, Biden said yesterday there's nothing he can do about it, and which is a little different than his op-ed piece. But, you know, he just kind of – I mean, he's, he's, of course there are things he could do. If you were back at the CEA chair and you had an Oval Office meeting with the president, what would you say? Is there nothing we can do about it? Really? No, there's plenty. I think for me, the main source of this is, you know, I'm brainwashed coming from the home of Milton Friedman. So my main source is <laughs> the money, the money supply. And, you know, economists can't agree on a lot of things, but we can agree on one thing, which is if you increase the supply of something, you lower the value of it. And it's the same thing for money supply. Once you increase the money supply, you lower the value of money, which is inflation. And I think... You know, you see less in OECD, you see less inflation. They have a less, a smaller growth in the money supply. You know, there's an argument that just redistribution of fiscal policy in itself, if it's tax financed, doesn't do much to aggregate demand because you're taking from some people and giving to others. And aggregate demand is, you know, includes both consumption and investment. So even though you might be taking investment from the rich and putting it in consumption for the poor, it doesn't necessarily change aggregate demand. It's not as clear, I should say, that it actually has a stimulative effect because it's you know it's when it's monetized that's really the, inf- the inflationary 
kind of aspect of it. And a lot of what people talk about inflation, a lot of times it's just relative price increases. The energy crisis is sort of just a relative price increase. We have a dramatic cut in supply uh, in the world, uh, both through Russia, but also through us. And, and I think, you know, the the fact that now the Fed, the Fed is obviously by many not considered to be very serious with real rates being very negative still. So, you know, I think that's one issue that needs to be fixed in some sense. It's not going to be a cheap way of fixing it. Well, Biden. When he can, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just I was just going to say, basically, the Fed did monetize the spending plans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this, yeah, they, yeah, no, they, that's that's the story. It was like a 40 percent growth in the in M two, right? In, manners, yeah. in the money supply, and that's the real issue for people who believe, <laughs> you know, it's ultimately a monetary phenomenon, inflation. That you know, you would have had massive energy price increases without inflation had the Russia war taking place, for example. That's mm. a, that's not inflation. That's just spike in energy prices or relative prices for energy compared to other goods. But if you're talking about broad-based price increases, which we have, everything pretty much, you know, what is it, 80 or 75 percent of them of the industries in CPI have, have way higher inflation than the 2 percent target of the Fed. That's inflation. It's a broad-based increase in prices, hmm. which, you know, people that are not Keynesian, I think, believe it's ultimately due to the money supply. So the Fed, the burden's going to be on the Fed. I mean, if... if yeah, but if, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to, you know, they're, they're obviously acting in tandem with the administration in one way or another. So, I, you know, the administration is not, is not raising taxes to fund all this stuff, so they're just monetizing it. So we got a big... Biden is going to wind up blaming the Fed. If there's a downturn, which I think is there coming, I got 30 seconds left. Can we get out of this without a major downturn? Well, I mean, he, there was interesting you said yesterday, like you said, it's a good sign that job growth is slowing, which I thought was very, very <laughs> a weird. <statement. laughs> I mean, yes. we're not even caught up yet to pre pandemic levels, right? And we're way off pre pandemic trends before, you know, early 2020. And to say that it's a good sign that we're slowing down in job growth, even though we haven't caught up yet, yeah. I thought it was a very, very strange statement. Thank you, Tomas. Tomas Phillipson, former CEA chair, now back to teaching school at the University of Chicago with all that free market monetarist stuff. Wonderful. Thank you, Tomas. We'll talk soon. Folks, okay. I'm Larry Kudlow. Other side of this break, we're going to talk to former Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger. What about Saudi Arabia and what about China? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So the Biden administration and foreign policy is maybe starting to look at China, but maybe not in a tough enough way. And also on the other side of the world, it turns out that uh, President Biden is canceling his trip to Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. So we're going to bring in Matt Pottinger, great friend, former Deputy National Security Advisor. First of all, Matt Pottinger, how are you, buddy? Hey, it's great to talk to you, Larry. How are you? Good. So, Matt, we, we won one here. Or you, me, O'Brien, uh, they did decide, finally, the Bidens, 
to keep China out of the thrift savings plan, the federal retirement plan. They finally <laughs> did that. It looked like they were going to allow 5,000 new mutual funds to finance China's military. But it turns out that we won this one. Were you surprised? Uh, Brian and I were going back and forth. Um, <laughs> were you surprised that they made the right call here? Look, I, I mean, uh, that letter that you and O'Brien sent, uh, you know, basically asking why our servicemen and women who might end up in a war with China are, are having their savings sent by the U.S. government to uh, Chinese, uh, you know, military industrial complex companies. So, I, I mean, you, you guys had a massive impact. You were able to put a hold on that. And, um, uh, and you know, now it's, it's – uh, it's important that that any uh, anyone who's investing in the thrift savings plan, the big federal pension program, should have very very clear uh, knowledge and transparency to understand whether they're investing in China at all, mm. uh, much less in uh, in in the Chinese military industrial complex. Well, for the for the moment, I think we we won that one. But Matt, here's yeah. what I really want to get to: there is a debate inside the Biden administration, about removing the Trump tariffs on China. There's about $350, $360 billion of the Trump tariffs, which I think you would agree with me, brought China to the negotiating table and helped get us to phase one. But I always looked at the tariffs, and I'm a free trader, except when it comes to China. And what do you yeah. think? What do you know about this debate inside the administration? And do you think, honestly, they're going to give China this benefit of removing the Trump tariffs? Well, we, what we know about the debate is that the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, is in favor of removing uh, at least uh, a sizable portion of those tariffs and that the president doesn't seem to have made a decision about that yet. You know, if they roll back these tariffs, it would be not only a political mistake uh, for President Biden, but it would be a strategic one at the same time. I mean, the arguments that people make for repealing the tariffs uh, really, really don't hold up. They really don't hold up. One is that it's it would alleviate um, uh, you know inflationary pressure when the inflation came from this massive spending uh, package that, mm -hmm. that President Biden and the Democrats passed, it, it, the, the, you know, even people who are anti-tariff uh, recognize that it would have uh, almost no impact uh, on, uh, on, on in, you know, easing inflation, first of all. Second, people uh, argue that it hasn't uh, helped the deficit, but in fact it has. We know that uh, those items that were targeted with the tariffs, remember at the beginning it was mainly – items that China was making with stolen American intellectual property that were mm -hmm. that were targeted. Uh, there, there was a significant uh, drop-off in imports of those goods uh, from China. And that's, that's also had the strategic benefit of sending a lot of our trade and, and our investment uh, to other markets, some of it back home into the United States, some of it to more friendly uh, uh, partner nations uh, in Asia and closer to home. So it's, it's actually had a strategic benefit uh, effect and like you said, I'm I'm also in favor of free trade, just not with, you know, uh, with uh, non-free trade uh, economies. And um, and and you know, China's been benefiting from massive subsidies and the theft of our intellectual property. Why would we reward them with uh, equal access to our market that we give to 
countries that are friendly and actually have the rule of law. You know, Matt, it just um, if I think of it in terms of national security, China would love to have tariffs removed. But why would we want to reward China for their bad behavior? Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the oppression of the Uyghurs continues, but, you know, they destroyed Hong Kong's democracy. But also, Matt, you know, they're playing footsie. They're in bed with Putin in the Ukraine war. I'm just thinking, you know, you meant strategically, wouldn't that be a bad signal to give, you know, some benefits and rewards to China right now? Really? Is that what we want? Yeah. Uh, Well, it it would be strategically incoherent. And and to to give give President Biden um, his his due, up to now, he hasn't really rolled back. Um, most of the things that we did in the Trump administration. Uh, The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, just a little over a week ago, gave a pretty good speech about China where he talked about, you know, basically, in my view, what he described is a a Cold War without using the term Cold War. In fact, Mm -hmm. he said we don't want to be in a Cold War. But if you really really look at the language, um, you know, the subtext of it is almost – one of uh, of a containment type policy like we had to uh, apply against the soviets and frankly china has declared a cold war against us xi jinping in his first you know major address which was kept secret for six years he gave a speech to the central committee of the communist party in, on january 5th 2013 and he said we're going to wipe out capitalism we're, mm. we're, we are we will inevitably uh, uh spread uh, our brand of autocratic socialism worldwide and capitalism will perish from the earth. So if they declared a war, a cold war mm-hmm. on us, mm-hmm. we might as well, you know, we, 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 we might as well return the favor. Yes, yes. I, again, I, I, I'm still a free trader, but not with them. And they're our adversary, as you point out. They, do, they want to crush us. Uh, well, that's Matt, how they describe us. That's how they describe us. So, mm-hmm. um and, and and they claim that we're already containing them. I don't think we are. But if, if we're already getting credit for it, why don't we actually <laughs> yes. Know, uh, yes. do, do the job? We're talking to Matt Pottinger, former deputy national security advisor uh, during the Trump years. Matt, let me switch gears. Uh, Biden is uh, canceling his trip to Saudi Arabia. And um, there was speculation if he went that he would bring the Saudis into the Abraham Accords. But then again, at the same time, I think we're still negotiating for a, Iranian, a new Iranian nuclear treaty, which strikes me as a bad idea. I mean, it's kind of like Iran versus Israel or Iran versus the Abraham Accords. But canceling this trip, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Yeah, you know, like I was saying earlier, I, I give the president credit where it's due, and and you know his his China policy is more similar to President Trump's China policy than it is to President Obama's. So I give him credit for that, even though there's a lot more they need to do to to show they've got an appetite for risk. On the Middle East, it's unfortunately a very different story. Hmm. Uh, the Biden administration's Middle East policy is incoherent. Uh, it's it's been self uh, uh, defeating in many respects. We had um, managed, you know, President Trump had managed the, the Abraham Accords, which were an absolutely uh, uh, in- incredible achievement. Right? We've got we made peace 
between uh, Israel and, and three Sunni Arab states. Um, that was only possible not only because of the personal diplomacy and time that, that the president and the administration put in uh, during, during uh, our time in office, but also because uh, he was able to provide um, a, a sense of security that the United States was not going to enable uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and its ayatollahs and its terrorist uh, 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 proxies and, and um, uh, you know, its Quds force and so forth that we weren't going to enable. In fact, we were going to rob those, uh, those institutions of, of access to cash. And, and we really um, uh, put our, our uh, stranglehold on the Iranian economy and made mm-hmm. it much tougher for them to wage these, these wars around the region. That last was minute. The, yeah, that was, the, that was the context that made those peace agreements possible. The Biden administration came in and began uh, negotiating immediately, trying to negotiate a, a deal uh, with the Iranians, uh, even though we know that they don't negotiate in good faith. We know that the deal that they cut with the Obama administration was undercut by uh, secret activities that were very well laid out by the Israelis through uh, Israeli intelligence and, and the presentation that uh, then Prime, Prime Minister Netanyahu made. So so it, it is, it is a, a, an incoherent thing to, to go negotiate with uh, a regime that does not negotiate in good faith. Yes. It's the worst part of their foreign policy right now. Matt Pottinger, I wish we had more time. We never have enough. But thank you very much for Saturday morning. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk to Tyler Goodspeed, former CEA chairman, about the jobs report yesterday and what about falling real wages. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. You can join us during the week, Monday through Friday, Fox Business. Name the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And if you can't watch us at 4, you just call up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a single thing. And you won't miss Tyler Goodspeed, who's former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, presently a Hoover Institution fellow out at Stanford University. Welcome back, Tyler. Thank you. Good to be with you, Larry. Uh, you were good on the show the other night. I wanted another minute for you, but, you know, TV, <laughs> never, there's never another minute, but you were perking. Um, so let's talk about the jobs report. Mm-hmm. 333,000 private payrolls is pretty good. A uh, couple of things I wanted to touch on. Uh, the report is a slower increase in jobs, and Joe Biden is touting slower jobs. Now, Tyler, I don't <laughs> – I, I, mean, I mean, I think everything is going to slow down. It's already started. But the point is um, we are about 800, 850,000 jobs below the pre-pandemic high. So, you know, we're recovering, but we're not expanding. Why would you want slower jobs? Yeah, that's a a bit of a head scratcher. And it was good to see labor force participation tick up, but Mm -hmm. we're still not back to where we were pre-pandemic. And I think that when you look at the U.S. economy today, it's still doing 
a pretty poor job by historical standards is doing a pretty poor job at matching unemployed workers to, to vacant jobs. In fact, mm-hmm. we haven't been doing this poorly since, since the late 1970s. And I think part of that is the early retirements. Part of it is also that there's still some regional variation in, in the labor market recovery. So some parts of the country have recovered super strong, uh, but it's not easy to move unemployed workers from California and New York to Texas and, Cal- and, and Florida. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The red states have done much better than the blue states. No question about mm. that. Um, Tyler, the GDP now from the Atlanta Fed is 1.3% for the second quarter. Uh, that uh, They haven't updated for the job report, but they're 1.3. The first quarter was negative, whatever it was, one, one and a half. Um, I mean, that's a slowdown, isn't it? I mean, that's just... A slowdown, and Biden's got to deal with that along with the inflation problem and along with the fact that gas prices have doubled. Yeah, six dollars and fifty cents a gallon here in Palo Alto uh, when we last filled <laughs> up this week. <laughs> ah, that's great. Um, yeah, and actually, this is why I I found the latest Congressional Budget Office long run forecast just completely baffling. I mean, they are they are very optimistic. On, on on somehow getting inflation to come down despite they they have demand still being above their estimates of potential output and they have unemployment still below their estimate of of a natural rate so i mean riddle me that how you can get immaculate disinflation i think parthenogenesis is more likely <laughs> yeah yeah um go ahead no no i was going to ask you the other thing is uh, wages Wages are okay in this report. So average hourly earnings for all employees, supervisors, and production uh, up 5.2%, 12 months. Uh, For the production workers, middle class, hard hat, blue collars, uh, they're actually 6.5%. Now, that's a high number, but it's a good number. I mean, they got killed in 2020. I'm glad they're bouncing back here. But, Tyler, both of those wage numbers are below the inflation rate by, you know, two to three percentage points. So real wages are falling. Uh, My pal Rick Santelli calls it the canary in the coal mine for a weaker economy, maybe recession. How do you see that? Yeah, so this is something that I think you and I, Larry, started talking about as long ago as as last spring. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually part of the reason why we haven't seen labor force participation fully recover. And that is because, look, people respond to real wages, not nominal wages. And if if, if real wages on average are declining, then that's that's not a huge incentive for, for folks on the margin between working and not working. Uh, in terms of its risk to the to the outlook, the macroeconomic outlook, look for a while for a long while last year and early this year, even though average real wages were declining, the overall real wage bill for the whole economy was still increasing until we got to March. And then in March, we actually saw that that overall the total wage bill in the U.S. economy uh, didn't keep up with inflation. So that's that is a little bit concerning for the outlook. So is this you mean this past March, this this past winter March, this, this past yes, the two months ago. So totally right. So that's like total income, and now yeah. total income right, wages times hours worked. And that's an important point. 
now that's falling behind inflation also. So that's going to be yep. a big problem. That's that's a big problem. Uh, you know, households are still sitting on $2 trillion plus in accumulated above-trend savings, but that's eventually going to dissipate. And, you know, if your real earnings are going down, you're going to be a little bit more hesitant to go out and spend. Are we in a recession? Are we in the front end of a recession? I don't I don't think so. You know, when we look at that Q1 report, yes, inventories declined a lot, exports declined a lot, government spending declined a bit. But when we look at the real inertial components of GDP, mm. particularly consumption, you know, it was still pretty strong. Uh, and I think that's going to persist for another couple quarters. Uh, but the real risk to the outlook, in, in my view, is is starting in 2023. Mm. How much... Uh... What are you thinking now for the Fed and their interest rate tightening and their balance sheet money supply tightening? How tough are they going to be? Well, I mean, it's looking like probably not tough enough. They are. I think it's pretty baked in that they are going to have to do the 250s and probably I can see them switching to a 25. But look, if we if we reflect on the 1970s, the Fed started to tighten to try and get inflation under control four times before Volcker. And every time they said, this is it, this is when we're going we're gonna to get inflation under control. And four times they paused or outright U-turned. Mm. And the median time from the start of the tightening cycle to a pause or U-turn was eight and a half months. Mm. What is... You know, they do 50, 50, in, what is it, 50 this month, 50 next month. They'll do another 50 in September. So that'd be 150, I'll call it. So that would be 2.5% Fed funds rate. But the inflation rate is still going to be higher than the target rate. Yep. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm thinking is this thing's going to go on for quite some time, and the economy is going to suffer from it. I mean, Biden is yeah. trapped here, I think. His woke policies have trapped the Fed first to expand, now to contract. I mean, I don't yeah. see how they get out of this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's the wrong playbook for where we are now. You know, the, the, the long forward guidance, the slow hiking cycle made sense in the context of the 2010s when inflation was nowhere in sight. You're trying mm. to give markets a lot, of, a lot of guidance. But inflation is already here. <laughs> Right, and so I don't think this 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 dragged out incremental approach with a lot of uncertainty necessarily makes sense in this context. Hmm. I would say another defeat for progressive policies, Tyler Goodspeed. That's what I would say. Big government socialism doesn't work. It it doesn't work, and you know, as, as you and I have discussed before, it's. If they were serious about tackling this inflation problem, which which is taxing lower income households mm-hmm. for whom a lot of these expenses are a bigger share of disposable personal income and, and they don't own their own home. So that's the biggest inflation hedge that, that they don't have. Mm. Uh, if they wanted to tackle inflation, then there are things that they could be doing right now, things like expanding leasing and permitting. Uh, for for new drilling, things like maybe issuing a few waivers for 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 uh, Jones Act to yeah. allow 
ship, shipment from port to port, mm-hmm. but they're not doing that because it would alienate their progressive base. Right. Yeah, they want more social spending. All right, Tyler. Um, gloomy but not impossible. There is a way out. The cavalry's coming. I hope it gets here soon. <laughs> the cavalry is coming, yeah. Tyler, Tyler Goodspeed of the Hoover Institute, former CEA chair, great pal. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the side of the break, we're going to take a, uh, 100 days in Ukraine. Where are we? General Keith Kellogg is going to talk about Ukraine. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. 100 days. Ukraine war, brave, tough Ukrainians led by Zelensky, who has become a fabulous world leader. But it's a very difficult situation, and the Russians are dug in in eastern Ukraine and taken some additional territory. And the question is, are we doing what we need to do to help the freedom-loving Ukrainians who want to boot the Russians out? Is that our policy? So we bring in General Keith Kellogg, great friend, retired Army Lieutenant General, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence and President Trump. And he's currently the um, AFPI American First Policy Institute co-chair of the Center for American Security. And by the by, we love to sell books. He's the author of War by Other Means, a general in the White House. I knew this general in the White House very well. How are you, Keith Kellogg? Hi, Larry. Larry, thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. How are you doing? How's your hip, doing... by the way? How's that hip? <laughs> That's it. That, it, it's doing great. And, you know, I had a very wise person in the White House tell me to get it done. And he said to me in very somewhat profane terms to go get it done. That guy's name was Larry Kudlow. I, I was so scared about getting the thing and being out of action. And, uh, you know, Larry, that was the best advice, candidly, you've ever given me. And it worked, worked great. I feel super good. <laughs> So, Keith, let's turn to the Ukraine story. Um, yeah. Russia dug in. I had uh, uh, General Keene on the TV show last night, and basically his assessment was a little bit pessimistic, particularly for him. Russia dug in in the east, taking some additional territory. Uh, Keith, what I, I'm asking you now is, are we going to provide enough artillery and uh, rockets and so forth will get there soon enough in your judgment. How do you assess this whole situation 100 days into the war? Yeah, Larry, Larry, that's a great question. And it probably it's a question that nobody has asked really, except somebody like you, <clears throat> because what you've seen is a war change in the last hundred days. It's gone from early on when the Ukrainians are very, very well around Kiev and Kharkiv. And now it's into a really a, what's called an attrition fight in the east near Donbass, where the, the Russians have done what they do very well, and they are very good in our artillery fight. And of course, we heard you heard that the president said, "Well, we've given them some missile systems, the multiple long-range rocket systems, which will give equivalence to what the Russians have." But Larry, here's the thing: there's a lot of symbolism there, but there's not significance there. Let me tell you what I'm talking about, and I think Americans need to catch on to this. We have basically said we're going to give the uh, Ukrainians four, that's F-O-U-R, four HIMARS uh, MLRS systems, which are very good. But those HIMARS systems are what I call the junior varsity of the MLRS. The big brother is what's called the M270 system. And I don't want to get into technology, but all those four systems gives you is basically – a platoon of artillery. When in in we have prepared in NATO a, bat, a battalion and a brigade of artillery of MLRS. 
and it, it, it does. It, I don't want to get into the real technical details because it'll confuse people. But I'll break it down to you really simple. An MO, a high Mars carries 12 rocket systems, where the M270 carries 12. So it's simple math. The high Mars systems we give him in one volley is 24 rockets. Well, if you had a, a very similar system, the M270 is 48. The reason why that's important, Larry, and it's important for people to understand, is when we created the MLRS system, we created that with a thing called a salt breaker, which was designed to fight the Soviets in the Warsaw Pact and would break their back. That's what they really need in great volume and great numbers. They don't need four systems. They need 40 systems mm. like this mm. to, to make it work. So it's really a lot of symbolism. Oh, we gave them MLRS. Really, you didn't. And the, and the reason why they need it is the MLRS gives the Ukrainians three things they don't have. It gives them a range advantage over the Russians. It gives them a, a, an advantage of sheer volume of fire and precision because each one of them is tipped with a precision uh, uh, GPS system on it. So they can basically go toe-to-toe with the Russians. Right now, they're losing that fight because of Russian artillery. So, I mean, it, it, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but I am not convinced the Ukrainians right now can win that fight mm. unless we significantly match up. Now, we've given them $50 billion. By God, I don't know why we don't give them the system they need to, to win that fight. Now, here's why I don't think they are, Larry. I think the president, President Biden, is afraid of what these calls escalation. Well, my God, the Russians are the one who escalated this fight. And I think you need to give them the chance to win this fight, not something that is very symbolic with four systems, Larry. That's like giving somebody who's a homeless person 25 cents on the street and say, go buy a good lunch. It's not mm. going to work. You know, I got to tell you, Keith, that's very similar to what Jack Keene said, General Keene said last night on the show. Very similar. Um, translate that into the Russian position. As, as I listen to this, we don't, we haven't given them the, uh, the best artillery systems. We haven't given them enough of it. So therefore, the advantages to Russia in eastern Ukraine, how much territory, I mean, what's the, what are the risks here? Zelensky said we've, you know, they have 20% of Ukraine. What are the risks here of a kind of, I'll call it a Russian comeback, if you will? Well, the, the risks are quite high because the, the Russians, frankly, were, were pretty bad in what they were doing. They violated about every principle of war in their initial assaults. But they've fallen back on what Russians have traditionally been good at. It goes back to the Soviet days. goes back to World War II. The one thing they are really good at is artillery fires. And artillery fires kills a lot of people. Mm. And it, it pushes the Ukrainians in a very bad defensive position. So the point is, unless you can equate their artillery systems, and I'm trying to keep it relatively understandable, unless you can go toe-to-toe with the Russians and, and give the Ukrainians a will to fight back, they're eventually going to lose this fight because numbers do count. There's a quality of numbers all its own, and the Russians bring the quality of artillery to bear. So what will happen is if it pushes the Ukrainians out of the positions they're currently at in the Donbass, the next tell to me mm-hmm. of the Russians is do they go towards Odessa do they go towards the south in the Kyrgyzstan area, and do they try to make Ukraine a landlocked country and take their final port, which is Odessa? That's the real tell. Is Biden Biden writes this op-ed in the New York Times, and you know there's some good rhetoric in this, but basically, does the Biden policy want to force a ceasefire and a deal? In other words, they they're giving the Ukraine some, but they're not giving the Ukraine enough. 
Biden says it's up to the Ukrainians to deal with, you know, how much territory they want to keep and how much territory they give up. I mean, are we going to force uh, a partition of Ukraine? Is that where this is leading? Yeah, I do. Larry, I think you're right. I, I think I don't know if a lot of people picked up on that by not giving them the systems they need mm. to really fight, uh, including those jets out of Poland. They're basically saying, look, we're telling the Russians we want to go to a negotiated settlement. Right. I don't think Putin wants to go there. And he's actually tying Zelensky's hands. Zelensky from day one has been asking for these heavy systems because he knew intuitively. And by the way, every military officer worth their salt would say the same thing. You've got to fight back the Russians' best system, which is our artillery systems. And if you're not, you're not, you're not really uh, allowing the Ukrainians a chance to win this fight. Wow. All right, General Keith Kellogg, um, an honest assessment, and we appreciate that very, very much. Folks, we're going to have former Federal Reserve Board Reagan appointee Bob Heller is going to talk about the Fed. Mr. Heller knows the inside of the inside of the inside of what our central bank is going to do. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be back in just a few moments. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And um, I want to talk some more about the Fed and whether they have the uh, fortitude or the proper economic models to deal with this high inflation rate, which is going to be very sticky for a while, a long while. And we bring in an old friend, Robert Heller, who was a former governor of the Federal Reserve. He was a Reagan appointee, which is a wonderful thing. That means he's almost as old as I am. (laughs) He's former president and CEO of Visa. And um, he's still doing some commentary and and some TV work. First of all, Bob Heller... It's a great pleasure. How are you? Absolutely great. How are you, Larry? I'm pretty good for an old guy, you know, hanging right in there. Let's just jump right into this. So uh, we got a doubling of the gas prices uh, right now. We got an 8 to 10% inflation rate right now. Mistakes, very bad mistakes were made in fiscal policy and monetary policy in the last couple of years. I'm looking at an article, Bob, uh, from real clear markets, it will probably take a recession to tame inflation. And it's written by a couple of bankers. Probably take a recession to tame inflation. Now, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to see the middle class, which is already getting hurt so badly by high inflation and gas prices and food prices. But Robert Heller, is that what this is going to lead to? The Fed is just going to have to tighten and tighten until they get a recession? I'm afraid I agree. Uh, the inflation is really becoming embedded now in the economy, and there's clearly more to come. If you look at the very high housing price increases, they haven't fed through yet to rental prices. The wages haven't uh, turned positive in real terms. So clearly there's more inflation to come. Uh, monetary policy has been excessively loose. And uh, we've got to get to a restrictive monetary policy, not just a little bit less put on the gas pedal. So uh, I agree with uh, what you said. There's all likelihood going to be a recession. Um, you were a governor with Manley Johnson and Wayne Angel, other Reagan appointees, other great friends of ours. Um, Wayne not feeling so good. Manley's fine thankfully. 
Um, you guys brought in a new model or revived an old model. You like to look at market prices, uh, including commodity prices or commodity index prices, uh, as a forecasting tool, whether inflation expectations are going up or down. That seems to, you know, that that approach that you guys did, which was so effective for, you know, 10 years, I'm going to say, the mid-80s to the mid-90s, the Fed has lost that, haven't they, Robert Heller? They don't seem to look at that. Those warning signs were there last year, and the Fed ignored them. Absolutely. Think about it. <clears throat> Inflation working through the economy almost like a snake that has swallowed a rabbit. Mm. Uh, you can see the rabbit moving through the snake, and the same thing happens with prices. First, uh, let's not forget money is the cause of all price increases. The Federal Reserve increased the money supply in 20 and 21 by well over 20% each year, and that uh, presented the, the firewood basically to ignite the current inflation. And then we saw it first in uh, commodity prices. We saw it in the stock market. We saw it in the housing market uh, going up. From the commodity prices, it moves into producer prices. From producer prices into uh, consumer prices. And that's what we are seeing now. And eventually it will be really in wages as well. That's the end of the inflationary process then. Mm. So from commodities to producer prices, to uh, consumer prices, to wages. That's the long chain that uh, inflation has to work itself through. If they had looked at the commodity price rule, Bob Heller, I think they would have seen last year, at least, that they should have been taking you know, actions, but they didn't. They kept expanding their portfolio, buying bonds, injecting cash. In other words, there are, it seems to me there's I, I don't even know they're they're not even on the Phillips curve anymore I mean I the Fed is so powerful but I don't know what they're doing and you know your points here how this thing's going to play out I mean does Jay Powell understand that does Lael Brainerd understand that does the current Federal Reserve understand this well I think monetary policy comes down to one thing and that is money hmm. The word money is never mentioned in any FOMC statement for over a year and a half now, and probably more. I only looked at a year and a half. Not once the word money is mentioned. That's crazy. So uh, then you talked about bond buying. Who in the world would want to buy mortgage-backed securities when we have an absolute boom in the housing market? Mm. Uh, that's a market that certainly didn't need any support, any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I think, yes, there were a lot of mistakes made, and I think some people are finally acknowledging that there were mistakes. Let me um, go to a second point here, Fed authority, power, governance. Um, I was talking to Judy Shelton, and you emailed in, you know, Judy's, very much opposed to the Fed's increasing its powers, but they have. Um, they're going to be the decisive factor. You're right about that. I mean, and it probably is going to lead to a recession. But this Fed seems to be more concerned 
about woke stuff, you know, climate change, um, income inequality, uh, you know, equal distribution of income, and then, of course, um, various what's called social justice issues. I mean, this Fed, which is supposed to be watching price stability and employment, I think they're watching a lot of non-inflationary things. They're more powerful, but they're modeling uh, again. You know, they're they're not aiming for price stability. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, they've forgotten about the congressional mandate uh, to provide for stable prices, and instead they're taking on all kinds of other uh, talking points. And you know, the Fed has only one tool, uh, basically, and uh, they should apply it to the inflationary issues rather than trying to solve all societal issues that are around mm. that they really cannot do anything about. Mm. What did you make of the meeting in the Oval Office between Biden, Yellen, and uh, Jay Powell? Well, I wasn't there. I don't know what was being said. <laughs> uh, it, must, it was probably a tense meeting. Uh, you know, the president says, afterwards that he doesn't want to push the Fed. He doesn't want to influence the Federal Reserve. But, uh, you know, so what it was, what was it all about? Clearly, there's got to be some communication between Treasury and the Federal Reserve, and that has always taken place. There always have been meetings with the administration and the Federal Reserve. So they just know what the other side is doing, what they're planning to do. But, uh, uh I, the one thing I really appreciate about the meeting, I must say, though, uh, thinking back again about the Reagan days, when Volcker tightened up on the economy uh, and tightened up monetary policy, he totally had President Reagan's backing. Mm. And Reagan hadn't appointed him. It was Carter who appointed Volcker. Mm. And uh, Reagan, you know, gave him his full support. Mm. And if Biden is giving him uh, to power is giving power the full support now that he can muster. I think that would be a very, very good thing. So that there's uniformity of purpose in the in the government. Do you think coming back to our beginning point, it will probably take a recession to tame inflation, which neither of us want. By the by, I know that we don't we don't know. I mean, me look, Bob. We should be deregulating energy and business right now in industry. We should be cutting tax rates the way Reagan did uh, and Trump did, for example. At least that might mitigate the the restrictiveness of the Fed. But they're not doing that. They're not going to do that. So do you think Jay Powell understands that there's a big, big in recession risk? Because he doesn't say it publicly. Um, and there's this idea that they can conquer inflation but they'll keep the unemployment rate at three and a half percent. I mean, that's pretty far-fetched. He would have to be extremely lucky. But you're right. The best thing the government can do right now is follow your old advice. Remember, drill, baby, drill. Yep, and, yep. Uh, if you would take only the restriction uh, of the uh, oil and gas industry, we wouldn't see $6-plus uh, gas uh, prices here in California. Uh, gas prices would come down pretty rapidly because we can supply more than all the oil that we need uh, to run this country. 
So there are things that the administration could do, but they are not willing to do it. Uh, I just saw today, you know, for instance, the ethanol requirements uh, will be increased for next year. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it will also hurt the food food shortage that a lot of people are worrying about. Mm. If we use the, the corn in order to produce more gasoline, then you don't have it to eat. Boy, that's a great point. You know, I got to focus on that on the, on the TV show. You're absolutely right. The corn lobby always wins, Bob Heller. I learned that the hard way when I was running NEC for Trump. The corn lobby always wins, and it's going to go to gasoline. Uh, and they get a lot of tax credits along with it, and that's it doesn't that it leaves less corn, less production corn going to consumers who would like to eat it at lower prices, not higher prices. A great point. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, Robert Heller, thank you ever so much. Former Federal Reserve Governor under Ronald Reagan. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Next time, we're going to look at Rob Astorino. Rob Astorino is running for governor of the great state of New York, and I make no bones about it. I want the GOP to sweep in New York State. Sweep. Bob Astorino will tell us his platform. Please stay right here. I'm Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I am Larry Kudlow. Now, I have made no bones about it. For weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, New York is in big trouble, New York City and New York State, big trouble. Crime, economy, taxes, education, terrible, just terrible. And I want a Republican sweep this fall, a Republican sweep. So we've been talking to various candidates for various positions. Uh, A strong governor in this state would make a lot of difference regarding crime and the economy, for example. So we're going to bring in an old friend, Rob Astorino, who was a Republican candidate for... Oh, we don't have Bob Astorino. We're going to get him. Uh, I hope we get him quickly because we're going to run out of time. Uh, He's former Westchester County executive. I mean, we've um, had Lee Zeldin on several times. Uh, We've had my pal uh, Andrew Giuliani on several times. Um, I'm not picking winners and losers. I'm just saying this state needs a clean political sweep because the policies have got to change. And I think of those policies, I guess, ABC, crime, taxes in the economy, and education reform, which is school choice. I'm not going to get into the abortion issue, and I'm not going to get into the gun control. I mean, the gun control laws are very strict in the state of New York. Um, it's a very complicated issue, uh, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's the overriding issue. Guns and crime, yes, but you know, no bail, no jail. That stuff has to change. We need officials who are hundred percent behind the cops. We need to sweep the criminals off the streets. My dear friend John Katsimatidis uh, has said uh, we know who the criminals are. We should put them in jail, but they're still out there, and that's because of bad political decisions. All right, we found Rob Astorino, again, Republican candidate for governor. Rob is an old friend. He's run before. He's a former Westchester County executive. So, Rob, welcome back to the show. Um you emailed me. You have an economic growth plan for the state of New York. Um, lay it out for us, because as I said, I'm not picking winners and losers in this race. I just want a Republican sweep, period, full stop. Yep. 
That's exactly right. And, Larry, good to be back with you. Sorry if my cell phone coverage, one of the things we need to do in New York is have broadband and cell phone coverage. I'm telling you, I'm up near Cooperstown, hmm. and we'll go a mile or two, three miles with no, no coverage. Anyway, we have to, and you and I worked on this and talked about this eight years ago when I ran against Cuomo. The tax structure in New York is prohibitive. It's, it's the reason why everyone is leaving in droves if you have any money whatsoever. So I think the estate tax has to be uh, abolished, and that will save a lot of our family farms, which are being reduced dramatically in New York. Uh, and our small businesses, we've got to reduce the uh, tax rates uh, from 11 right now down to three. Just simplify things. Mm. The other thing is, obviously, the regulatory climate in New York is ferocious. It, it is destructive to businesses, big and small. And it's something I worked on in Westchester as county executive, where we actually brought in the agencies and said, stop. And we work with the industries that they're supposed to oversee, not be competing with or, you know, um, against. And we said, what are, the, what are the onerous ones? And we worked on that, and it was successful. But it also said we're open for business. New York yesterday just had a moratorium they put on on cryptocurrency mining. Mm. You know, this is so absurd. It's Stupid. an opportunity to bring in a new industry in New York. Mm. And because the radical environmentalists, uh, they're trying to prevent it. It's just it sends a really bad signal. But there's many. there's a lot of other things. Fracking in New York is a must. We yeah, are Rob, walking on wealth. Talk right. That's such an important. And gas prices are higher. Uh, you know, it's hard to get natural gas. Uh, we could have. You know, Pennsylvania showed us how to do it, and we've stopped it for all these years. Tell me about changing the energy story. If you were governor, absolutely. You know, Pennsylvania is doing it as you mentioned. They border our southern tier, and we're not allowed to do it. We're walking on so much revenue. We're walking on natural gas that we need to bring in the energy for the manufacturing or the businesses and to reduce utility rates. So natural gas, to me, is a no-brainer. Also, nuclear. I mean, we closed Indian Point. We chased them out of New York. That's 25 percent of our energy. And I would see if Indian Point can reopen. But more than that, I would cite, if possible, a few more Indian Points or nuclear power throughout upstate New York. I'm an all-of-the-above approach when it comes to energy. I think it's necessary, but the fact that we've got a natural gas moratorium and infrastructure or moratorium, you can't get hookups anymore. It is so ridiculous and stupid, and it's counterproductive to New York coming back. Um, I think our farms need to be saved. I mean, that's not something maybe in New York City they care about, but throughout upstate New York, it's really, really important. And I did this in Westchester. You know, Larry, we had a budget of $1.8 billion when I walked in the door. I left with a $1.8 billion budget, hmm. and that was hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars cutting out all the time because of the natural increases every year. So in order to do that and hold the line on spending, then you can literally cut taxes and give it back, and I think that's really, really important. So there's a lot of different things, including the innovative technologies. We've got to be welcoming to them, um, and we've got to marry them up. But also the the you know, it's not everybody that needs to go to college or wants to go to college. So the fact that we should be training kids in high school and through BOCES and community colleges for skilled labor, tradesmen, they can make a great career. And we need that in New York. So, you know, look, you got to It starts from the top. you got to say, I'm welcoming business. I'm going to make it easier to do businesses, including the licensing and uh, all the regulatory reforms. 
something like State Environmental Quality Review Act, it is nearly impossible to build anything in New York anymore without um, piles and piles of studies and lawsuits and uncertainty. That's got to go away, too. So it's the big things and it's the little things that really will turn this state around. You know, it's so funny. It's like I'm listening to you and your excellent, excellent policy presentation. I'm just saying, you know, let's not make this any harder than it needs to be. We need to slash taxes. We need to slash anti-business regulations. And we need to open up the energy. We're sitting on the Marcellus Shale, which is one of the biggest uh, oil and gas reservoirs in the world. And we're forbidding the use of it. And if you. It wouldn't just be the southern tier. You know, that would trickle up into uh, western New York, you know, Buffalo, Rochester and stuff. The the job-creating potential of opening up energy would be massive, absolutely massive. And, and you lower the taxes and the regs. I mean, let's not make this any harder than it needs to be. But there were, the, the Democrats are all socialists. I mean, Hochul's yes. a socialist. The legislature is socialist. The city council in New York is socialist. That's why I want a Republican sweep, 100% sweep. Well, in, in the words of your old boss, it would be huge <laughs> if we were to open up the energy. Yes, And right. it, it's more than that, too. It's not just a contract between a private landowner and a company, and I would be all in favor of that. I hope they make millions, these landowners. Hmm. But I would have a percentage of the revenue – from natural gas in New York go directly to property tax relief in each mm. county, not right. to the government, right. not to the local government. So go in the black hole, a refund directly. So everyone gets those benefits. That's what Pennsylvania did, by the way. And that's one reason why Pennsylvania's income tax has stayed relatively low, whereas New York's has exploded upwards. I mean, they yep. used, look, they took royalties for the gas, oil and gas production. Well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And you're saying you can take the royalties or the fees and cut taxes, and that would attract more businesses and, you know, make New York a technology center again. But they won't do it. Hochul won't do it. None of these people want to do it. No, they're, they're, they're radical, and it has to be stopped. I do think, Larry, I honestly believe this November is going to be the revenge of the normal people. And, and what I mean by that clearly is just average New Yorkers and Americans who are fed up with everything, the chaos, the, you know, the crime, uh, the coddling criminals, all these nonsensical and radical environmental issues, the new Green Deal, which we have in New York coming here soon, the taxes, all the craziness. We're upside down. And I think the revenge of the normal people is going to be felt very heavy at the polls this year. And we're going to we're going to have some big wins, not only in New York here, but throughout the country and, and right size this ship again. Yeah, the cavalry is coming. You're right. There's a red yeah. wave and it's going to affect it's going to come to New York also. Look, it, um, Rob, it's a good race. I mean, I just want Lee, Lee Zeldin, Andrew Giuliani, yourself. It's a good race. Stay on the issues. Uh, we've just got to reform this entire state. I mean, New York is sinking. We're losing badly to the other states. And it's not just Florida. We're losing to the Carolinas. We're losing to Georgia, right? We're losing to Texas. It ain't all just Florida. We're just losing because they hate business here. And this woke, progressive crap. This is New York is even worse than Biden, I think. It is. It is. And it's it's not just business they hate. They hate their own people. 
You know, anyone here who has any success whatsoever is chased away. Mm-hmm. And and as we've seen, and I blew the lid off this, they're now flying from the southern border, illegal immigrants, into wow. places like Westchester County Airport. And they're giving all non-citizens the benefits of being a citizen, and we're paying the bills for this. It's just mm-hmm. totally absurd. All right. Rob Astorino, good luck on the campaign trail. Great, great policy presentation. I really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. It's another bad week for stocks. Stick around. Much more to come. I'm Kudlow. We'll see you in a bit. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please join us during the week. On Fox Business, the name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And we're going to do some stock market work here, some stock market work. Another bad week. Stocks were down for the week. Interest rates were up for the week. Gasoline prices up for the week. Crude oil's running 120 bucks. That was up this week. So it's not a great story, but it's not the worst story I've ever seen either. Let's talk to our guest Jack Perugian, founder and chief economist for UCX and chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Michael Zanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media, co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. Gentlemen, welcome back. This is uh, we're not going to do the Armenian stock market. We're going to do the American <laughs> stock market. <laughs> I just had to put that in, and um, Michael Zanian. You were right about the Yankees. Holy cow. You know I have to put this in, even though it's not the stock market. Holy cow. They're unbeatable. Yeah, you know, Larry, you and I have been baseball fans for many years. (laughs) And I I think one of the axioms we would agree on is that pitching is the most important thing in baseball. And the Yankees pitching has been superb. Their, Their earned run average is a full run a game lower than a year ago. And... For the last six games, the starters earn an average is below 1.6. You know, you get great pitching day in, day out. You could win very consistently, which is which they've done, even with injuries and with inconsistent hitting. So that's why I'm really, really optimistic on this, our chances this year to win the World Series. Yeah, it looks good. looks real good. I got the Yankees winning, and I got the Rangers winning. I'm a Ooh. diehard Ranger fan, too, so it's all very cool. Now, Mr. Ozanian, uh, the stock market is not winning. What's your take? Uh, I, I think uh, we're starting to see a very significant slowdown in the economy. I think we're probably going to get a recession either towards the end of this year, maybe the early part of 2023. I think largely Powell's bungled it for some reason. He's not following the sound Fed policy of the 80s and 90s of a stable and strong dollar. Mm. He should be leaving interest rates alone. Let the market decide the cost of renting money. I mean, he's almost begging for an economic crash here and and focus on the money supply which is still increasing pretty rapidly and that's why i think inflation uh is still the biggest concern and we've been getting as you just pointed out larry a lot of a sort of a mixed bag of economic data you know so you could sort of cherry pick depending on your viewpoint you know that the government labor report was pretty good the adp report was terrible 
The national purchasing manager survey was very good. The regional was horrible. Uh, you know, you can go back and forth, but just keeping it to corporate profits, which I think are the key thing to where this market is heading, I, I think margins have peaked, and I think earnings, especially real earnings, uh, growth, I, I don't believe the consensus 10% for the next two years. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think a, a sector that may be leading this and telling us something is typically when interest rates start to rise, you see bank stocks do well because of the spread in the net margin between lending and borrowing. It's not the case this time. The mm. big banks have been doing very bad, and I think that tells us something. Yeah, you know, J.P. Morgan down 18% year-to-date, B of A down 19%, Goldman Sachs down 17%. So you're right about that. Um, Jack Perusian, are you as worried? Are you as worried as Mike Ozanian? Without question. I think Mike was spot on with his analysis. You know, what we're doing is we're living in the aftermath of policy errors. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, these, are, these are monetary policy errors, energy policy errors. These are errors that, that we should have taken care of six, eight months ago, a year ago, and we, and we ignored them. The Fed ignored them. And now we've got a, a Treasury secretary that's saying, well, I'm sorry. You know, I was wrong. Well, you know, yeah, that, that's great that you were wrong. You just destroyed the middle class. But, you know, it's, it's, that's the problem that I think that we're having. And all of this volatility that we've experienced, and those of us that are, that are in the markets for 30-plus for years know this, is a warning signal. It's telling us that there is a much more severe move coming. And, you know, it, it, this feels, if anything, every rally that we've experienced feels like a bear market rally. You know, it does not feel with, like there's any conviction. And the other thing that really scares me, Larry, is that every time we've seen the markets really have a severe correction, it's been preceded by a spike in oil. Mm. We saw it back in, in, you know, in 08. We saw it happen. I can go all the way back to, to 87 and remember it. I remember it in 90. We always saw oil spiking, and it caused the markets to just have this amazing effect, this ripple effect. And, and I can see it happening now. You've seen demand destruction. We're seeing it happen. And, and all of that is working its way into, the, into earnings. Now you're starting to see people pull back on their earnings projections. Uh, you know, Microsoft even came out and said, hey, I think we're a little too optimistic. You know, we've got retailers that are cutting back. Amazon's cutting back. You've got Tesla cutting back. This is not indicative of a strong market and a strong economy with policies that make business feel good. Yeah, you know, Elon Musk, you mentioned Tesla, Elon Elon Musk kind of pulled the plug on everything. He's cutting back 10% on Tesla. And he said, what did he say? It's a super bad, it's a super bad economy. <laughs> Biden didn't like that much. I don't know. I, I, I would take the over on Musk. I'd take the under on Biden. So I think you guys are probably right. Did you see the, uh, the Janet Yellen interview on CNN where she, you know, this was her apology interview. I, I call it a hostage video. It looked like the old hostage videos. Um, it's a very weird time. Look at Mike Ozanian. If the Fed is going to try to conquer inflation at this point, I mean, they're very late behind the curve. Uh, it seems like that will ultimately have to lead to recession. We don't like that. I mean, I'd like to see lots of tax cuts right now and deregulation and open the spigots for oil and get those gasoline prices down. But none of that's going to happen. It's all up to the Fed. And that's uh, in the past. 
That's a recession prescription. I agree. Uh, and what I see, step back and, and, and look at the forest for the trees. This is an administration that, number one, seems to have boxed itself in. It's committed to anti-growth fiscal policies. And, you know, the Yellen speech, which I did see, and the very sort of, I don't know, bizarre, let's call them, remarks by the president that slow growth in employment is good. Yeah. Uh, uh, When you look at all of that, he seems to want to change this by changing. uh, There's been some reports about the messaging within his administration. That's not going to get it done. Uh, we know what gets we know what works. We know what leads to rising real wages and to rising real corporate profits. It's a stable dollar and it's fiscal policies with incentives that encourage and encourage investment and growth. Even with the revision in for, first quarter productivity, it was still down way over one percent, which mm-hmm. I think is is, 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 is very telling. I was very happy to see in the government job report hospitality come back and some of the other services, which tells me that a lot of the bad stuff that happened because of the pandemic is still uh, leading to some growth in GDP and employment. I think that's positive, and it's great that we're coming back from that. But I think that once that starts to dissipate and the services and companies that were hit hardest by the pandemic sort of get to employment, which is still going to be tough because it's hard to convince people to come back to work when their Mm. real wages are going to be down. But once we do that, where is the growth going to come from? And the market, while it hasn't crashed, the forward PD price earnings ratio is over the last few months has gone from above 20 Mm. to about 17 and a half. And I think, Uh, it's going to contract some more. I think it's going to probably go closer to 16 Hmm. in the weeks ahead. All right. Let me take a quick break, and we'll come back and try to help people get through this and give them some good investment advice. We're talking to Jack Berugian of UCX and Global Smart Commodities, Mike Ozanian of Forbes Media, and uh, Sports Money on the Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with Jack Berusian, founder, chief economist for UCX, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money uh, on Yes Network, which is a very cool show. I've watched it a whole bunch of times. Um, Jack Berusian, in a worrisome situation, what do investors do? Do you take a shorter-term view? Do you take a longer-term view? I mean, the, we may see good, positive pro-growth political changes in Washington this November, but then again, that might not stop recession or inflation either. So what what should folks do in this environment? I think that people have to be very defensive, at least in the short term. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it feels to me as if, yeah, and my old mentor, Dr. Bing Sung from Harvard, used to say to me, because uh, I, I, I used to take care of him in the endowment fund, Uh, There are times where you feel like something is going to break, and it feels that way with what's happening with inflation, what's happening with, with, you know, with energy prices especially. Um, And and it's important to keep in mind, uh, you know, that that there are opportunities out there, but there are times where maybe losing – 
four or five or seven percent in inflation sitting in cash might be the best trade, unfortunately. Mm. And, you know, we might be at that point right now until things stabilize. Look, if we get an election result in, in November that, that takes us back to where we were, where we could free up you know, seed capital and we see job creation, real job creation and business creation, which is what we saw under the Trump administration. If we get back to that, then you'll see the market take off. But we're not there. What we're looking at right now is a market that is still reeling from what is happening out in Washington. It's reeling from what the Fed has not done. They're in, they're, they're in action over the course of the last nine months. And, and now, you know, we're, we're kind of scratching our heads collectively, trying to figure out where the safe haven is. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it used to be gold, but gold is going down. You know? So th- the reality is that there are times where we have to just bite the bullet and maybe stick in cash for a few months, and I'm starting mm-hmm. to think that this is the time. Yes, well, rates, interest rates are going up, so there is a return on cash for a change. Interest rates probably going to go up a lot more. Michael Zanian, um, in this kind of environment where you know the Fed is going to be fighting inflation and restraining money supply, tightening financial conditions, going to have an impact on the stock market, it's probably going to be like two years. That's my guess. Not going to, it's not three, four months. It's going to be several years. Where can you hide? What does an investor do? Well, everything Jack said, I agree with uh, 100%. But you guys have to excuse me. With the Yankees and Rangers doing so well, I'm a little <laughs> giddy. So I, I, I made I, – uh, my, my, my picks may be a little giddy. But I, I, there are two stocks, actually, I really love right now because I just think they've been beaten down to the point where they're just too cheap to pass up. One is Merck. And the other is Chevron. Their forward PEs and yields are far, far more attractive than the market. Their, their forward PEs are both 12. Merck's yielding 3%. Chevron, over 3%. You know, the, there's a lot of smart fund managers and institutional money that's been snapping up Merck lately. So I, I always kind of like betting on the jockey a little bit in these instances. And, and Chevron, I think, sometimes gets overlooked. You know, there's sort of unconventional production, which – typically involves a lot of horizontal drilling and fracking. It grew to a record close to almost 700,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day down in the premium basement during the first quarter. And and their output guidance uh, is being increased. Merck's earnings uh, guidance is being increased. I like both of those. The only thing I may disagree with you guys a little bit on is I would still, even though the Fed's raising rates, I, I would still buy a little gold right now. The uh, gold to oil ratio is is about fifteen and a half. That's uh, historically on the low side, and I and I don't think it's going to ratchet up higher because oil's going to fall. I think it's going to ratchet up higher because gold's going to increase. So I'd still hedge a little bit with gold at this price. Uh, Jack Bruzian, do you know anything about I bonds, saving you know Treasury savings bonds that are indexed for inflation? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And you know what? They're, they're actually a great investment right now. Uh, you know, they were yielding, I think, for three or four months, you were able to get like about 8% for a while there. So um, I, I like that. Uh, you know, but, but the reality is that, you know, there's a time where we're going to have to turn around and, and buy this market. The question is, at what point? When does it get cheap enough? And, you know, because there is, again, there is a lot of value out there, Larry. We know that. So, so the real question is, how much pain can people take? And I just want to be ready to, to, to pull that trigger and put money to work 
uh, as you know, when we get to that pain point, when we start to see that the diehard bulls throw up their hands and say, that's it. Uh, I can't take it anymore. And, and that'll be the point that, that we've got to really get in aggressively. And it might happen before November because the market might read things into what might be happening prior to it happening, mm. um, which is usually the case. But, uh, but let's pay attention. Again, CPI next week on Friday is going to give us a real good idea of, of, of inflation. And, and I would say pay attention to core inflation when they strip out food and energy because we're seeing a, a real turn. Look at lumber prices as they've gone down. Look at, look at wheat, corn. Uh, you know, uh, some of these other food, you know, agricultural commodities have started to turn, and they're well off of their highs. So, but if, so if you strip out, you know, the, the, the real volatility that we're seeing in, 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 in energy, it really gives us a better feel for what might be out there in the next six to nine months. Mangozanian, hmm. the Fed is um, now stopping their bond purchases. They're going to shrink the portfolio. They're going to run down. Uh, whatever, $95 billion a month, some such. Uh, what is that uh, going to do to market interest rates, like the 10-year, for example? Well, I, I think that what's going to happen is it's still going to depend on where you're going to see M2 go. And, I, you know, for a while they were still using the repo market to increase the money supply. So while you could see that help temper inflation, if they're still going to be sort of, if you will, taking money out of one end of the bathtub and pouring it in the other, mm. it, it's, it's not going to do anything. And, you know, if you still look at the broader uh, commodity index, you know, it's still been increasing. So I, I don't know that there's a lot of confidence that that tool uh, is, is going to have any significant impact along with, you know, everything else the Fed has been doing. So does the 10-year go up? Uh, it's at 290 now, 293. Friday's closed. Does it go back to three and a quarter? Does it go to three and a half? Oh or? yeah, no, I no, I, I think the ten year is definitely uh, going to continue to go up. I I absolutely do believe that. Jack uh, Rosen, do you think that's? Uh, do you have a you're a commodity watcher, particularly um, five? You know, the five year note is two ninety three. The ten year note is two ninety three. Um, are they going through three percent? I mean, are we going to get a you know crashing bond market here with higher rates? I don't think we see a crashing bond market, but I do think that we see an inverted yield curve. Um, I think it's one of those things that we'll see over the course of the next six months as the Fed is raising rates. Uh, you'll see the long end probably come in, and you'll start to see the, the, the short end going up. You know, it's one of those – it's going to be one of those phenomena that, that kind of leaves it. And, and one of the reasons, again, is because I think that we are misreading ex- inflation expectations for the next two years. Uh, we're already baking it in the cake. And if we don't get the inflation that people expect, we're going to get a disinflationary pressure, which hits market. And if that's the case, then look for that long end of the curve to probably just be pegged right where it's at and the short end to rally right through it as the Fed does what they have to do to try to you know, keep or what, they've, what they've created, which is this, this monster, uh, back into the cage. Uh, and, and, and that's really the, the problem that I see with the bond market. So, you know, what, that's the, and, and let, let's be honest, that's the way I'm trading it right now. I'm looking for uh, that, that spread between the twos and, and the tens to come in significantly mm-hmm. and then invert. All right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Jack Berusian and Mike Ozanian, two old pros. Terrific stuff. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to have money and politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. 
Is Joe Biden being honest with us about inflation and the root cause of inflation? Stick around. Much more to do. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us during the week. Fox Business, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Two of the stars of that show, Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, chief economist of Freedom Work and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, which is such a fabulous uh, product. Uh, welcome back, kids. So, um, so Joe Biden's on an apology tour. He's terribly sorry. He didn't know about inflation until just recently. <laughs> Janet Yellen goes out there and makes the same apology in what looked like a hostage video. If you look at the CNN thing, she's just, oh, no, I was wrong. I'm so sorry I was wrong. And and Biden writes an op-ed piece in the journal about inflation and he talks about it more yesterday. And his basic message is, I'm sorry, now we're going to deal with inflation. And I want America to understand the root cause of inflation. Hold on. Hold your breath. The root cause is Vladimir Putin. That's what I heard, Liz. Vladimir Putin is the cause of American inflation. And by the way, the gasoline price is now officially doubled. You buy it? Of course not. Uh, just because the Democratic uh, frog chorus is chirping from their lily pads, that's Putin's price hike. No, I do not uh, buy it. Look, I mean, here's here's Biden's problem. We and I, I mean, this isn't just the three of us. An increasing number of people look back at that American Rescue Plan, 1.9 trillion dollars, and know that that just pushed too much money into the economy when we still had a shortage of goods. Uh, it made too many people sit on the sidelines, creating a labor shortage. And that is when inflation began to really take off. How can Biden come out or Yellen and say that's the issue, too much spending, when, <laughs> when their solution is more spending? Because <laughs> even now, that's what they want to do. It's all going to be better because we're going to spend more money uh, on child care and all these other benefits. And that's going to make it better. They're in a box, and they have absolutely no idea how to climb out. You know, you're right that if you look at that op-ed carefully, I mean, he puts the burden on the Fed. I'll get to that in a minute. But he also makes a pitch for some kind of build back better, more social spending subsidies. You're absolutely right about that. But, look, it doesn't matter because Putin is the problem. Steve Moore, in addition to Putin, um, everybody seems to be walking out of the White House. Uh, 20, I mean, 21 blacks walked out. I just read someplace uh, the communications department people are walking out. And basically one of the messages that President Biden is giving us is, you know, besides Putin, he uh, hasn't communicated his policies correctly enough. And his own staff keeps walking back what he says. So is it a communications problem? Is it a messaging problem? Or... I don't know, maybe it's a woke, progressive socialist problem. What do you think? Well, I think the latter. And in fact, that's just what I was going to say, is that we've had a, now a 15-month experiment in modern monetary theory. You mm. know, that's the idea that you can just spend, 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 and borrow, and borrow, and borrow forever. And it was a kind of crackpot idea that a bunch of second-rate economists came up with a few years ago. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> Joe Biden and his team took it seriously. And then, you you know, you had the progressive uh, 
policies of higher, you know, higher taxes and more spending. And and then they added that this green energy lunacy. And it's it's been a uh, witch's brew of uh, unintended consequences. (laughs) Although a lot of people, you know, always ask me, do you think this is unintentional or intentional the way they've destroyed our economy? I I do think it's unintentional. Uh, I wanted to make one other quick point. You're quite right about um, the, you know, the uh, the piece that that uh, Biden had in the Wall Street Journal, where his three solutions to higher inflation were one, uh, more green energy subsidies, two, mm. build back better. And the mm. third, which is one I'm most worried about now, Larry, is price controls, price yeah. controls. We're back mm. to the 70s. You know, if it weren't for those, it's not just Putin, by the way, it's, it's those meat packers. It's the chicken farmers. It's the, it's the bad oil companies and the pharmaceutical companies. If we just put price controls on them, we could have gas lines. And I remember, by the way, when I was like 12 years old and my parents, and when I grew up in Chicago, they'd pack us into the, the old station wagon. We'd get up at 630 in the morning and we'd be seventh in line to get gasoline. Mm. <laughs> Those were the good old days. So, uh, but one other quick thing. What about these uh, 20 Nobel Prize economists? Or how oh, many, yeah. How many were there? How about that? I mean. People wonder why we don't always, quote, trust their science, quote. Um, There were at least 30 prominent economists, many of them who had uh, won Nobel Prizes, who said, don't worry about inflation. And they had it completely wrong. You know, you got to take the the Nobel Prize winners in economics and the Pulitzer Prize winners (laughs) in newspapering. Who touted, who touted the Russian collusion argument for several years. Exactly. I mean, yep. Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prizes and Nobel Prizes could be the death of this country, for God's sakes. Uh, Liz, well, Pete, Liz Pete, the president, is at, he's out yesterday in that uh, bizarre press conference when he wasn't talking about Elon Musk. I want to get to that in a minute. He was, says basically there's nothing we can do. Gas price, gasoline prices are high, and there's nothing we can do. That was his mantra. Now, I mean, really? There's nothing we can do? Again, he has put himself in a box, and I think uh, it is so clear that even as obviously we are in a place right now where the entire green agenda can go forward but has to be put second place behind providing the fossil fuels that Americans and indeed the entire world needs right now, he cannot bring himself to do that. So uh, it's better just to pretend that the only sources of oil in the world are Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Russia than to imagine that, oh, yes, just recently America was the number one producer of oil and natural gas. How incredibly stupid is this? Because, boy, is, there is one thing that makes headlines day after day after day, and that's the price of gasoline. And, Larry, what I'm concerned about, and I think what they're trying to get out ahead of, perhaps with this humiliating trek to Saudi Arabia, is that China, as China comes back to life, which it looks as though that could happen in the next few months, the demand for oil is going to go through the roof. As at the same time that the EU is actually beginning to uh, cut back on Russian oil exports, which up till now really haven't been affected very much. This, I think, will bite. I think there's just not enough capacity in Asia to buy all the Russian oil that Europe won't buy. So Russia's going to be in a a pickle. There's going to be less production out of Russia, and also demand's going to start to increase. So this gasoline price thing really could go 
you know, much higher. And and the administration has absolutely no idea what to do. Well, Jamie Dimon, Jamie, once again, you're a little behind the curve because you don't understand that Pete <laughs> and Jennifer Granholm are telling us that everyone is going to have an electric car. I, mean, I know. Again, I know. This, this gets to the absolute idiocy of these people. I mean, five to six percent of the cars on the road are yeah. electric vehicles. So yeah. that, that means, if my math is right, ninety-four percent of us still, you know, get our fuel at the pump, and and yet they keep talking. I mean, I think uh, Biden mentioned electric cars again yeah. yesterday. He did. Yeah, maybe by two thousand thirty-five, half of us will have electric cars. But it, it just gets to the point that they seem somewhat deranged and completely out of touch <laughs> with the major kind of concerns of Americans. And I want to make I one agree. other quick point. I believe that Nick, I, I believe that it was Nixon, Ford, and Carter all lost their – well, Ford and Carter lost their elections. Nixon was impeached because the economy stunk and because you had high inflation. And people hate inflation. They hate gas prices like this. So I think Brett Biden and the Democrats are in great peril and they're ignoring any steps to look. If I were Biden, I'd just say, "Okay, you know what? We can put a pause. Well, let's put a pause on the green energy stuff for now. And exactly. Let's just drill, drill, drill. <clears throat> exactly. And may I just also add, <clears throat> when you have Ro Khanna, uh, a Democrat from California, coming out with a piece, I think he had a whole piece saying, "Here's what actually Biden should do about inflation." They are scrambling. I think Democrats are scared to death. They know this is just as bad as you say, Steve. You know, price control is going to be a bigger and bigger threat. And you have all these lefties running antitrust, uh, this crazy woman at the Federal Trade Commission. You've got the Justice Department antitrust. Uh, They're talking about, Steve Moore, to your point, you know, on on drugs, the um, uh, Medicare will determine all drug prices. Uh, That's a precursor. They're going to try to take that even further for some of these other industries. These are, by the way, 1970s-style solutions, right? Nixon, well, Nixon yeah, wanted yeah. price controls. Ford yeah. kept most of them. Carter kept most of them. It wasn't until 10 years later that Reagan stopped them. That will yeah. make the problem worse, won't it? Sure, well, and by the way, I had a little discussion with Lena Khan, who's the new um, FTC commissioner. She, she thinks the Kudlow show is a monopoly. Because your ratings are too high, Larry. <laughs> Break up, Larry Kudlow. Yes, right. By the way, Break. congratulations. I, I meant to say that your your ratings are off the charts. So congratulations, number oh, one, well, number one business show in America. That's incredible. Well, you t- um, you two are big factors in that, by the way. So I thank you. While we're on this topic, you two are yeah, both but, I, but I'm on only half, I'm only half joking about like Lena Khan. I mean, she thinks every. Every store on every street corner is a monopoly, you know? mm. and they just want to. And it's the ultimate form of regulation. And the only thing I'd correct you on a little bit is a lot of Republicans are infatuated with this too. You know, break up the companies because they're too powerful. I want to talk about that. Let's take a break because you're you've been campaigning on this. You've got Josh Hawley and a group of them that want the government to break up the technology companies, which really is a progressive policy hang on you know, let's just hang on here for a second take a break come back we got liz peak fox news contributor syndicate columnist steve moore freedom works committee to unleash prosperity both key stars on the kudlow show monday through friday 4 to 5 p.m we'll be back right after this quick break from wall street to the white house this is the larry kudlow show welcome back folks we're talking to liz peak fox news contributor syndicated columnist 
Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Steve's latest book is Gobzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Boy, that's it right there in a nutshell. Um, Steve Moore, Josh Hawley and some Republican senators are going in with, uh, what's her name, Amy Klobuchar and some Democratic senators to tear apart our technology companies. What is up with that? So it's, you know, interesting. I had a, do you remember Chris Cox, Larry? Yeah. Uh, he was a congressman from California. I think he was the, I SEC. Think he was the head of the SEC at one point. Yep. And, you know, he was reminding me, I, t- I had a lot of talk with him this week, and he was the guy who wrote the first kind of internet laws back in 1994, 95, when nobody even knew what the internet was. And the whole idea of behind his bill was to make the internet tax-free, regulation-free, and lawsuit-free. And, you know, you look back and you have to say that was probably the mo- one of the most successful laws in the history of the country because it launched the, the trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth creation um, from these incredible companies like Google and Apple and the line. And so what, what's going on now is that because these co- companies have been so successful, and by the way, they're not quite as successful as they were six months ago, right? I mean, plus the, these, the big five have lost, what, a trillion dollars in market cap. Uh, I've always believed that the market is the best way to discipline uh, companies. But there is a big move to break up these companies, and uh, it's coming from both sides of the aisles. And, uh, you know, we're treating these companies like Google and Apple and Amazon. By the way, I don't like their politics, Larry. Let me say that. I don't like their politics. I don't like Twitter's <laughs> politics. I don't like Facebook's politics. But, you know, you go back to the origins of this antitrust stuff. John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, uh, Henry Ford. These were people that built our country. Mm. <laughs> you know, John D. Rockefeller was not a villain. Mm. He built our country. And the, and this is the next generation. So I hate this stuff. I hope Republicans get away with it, get away Let- from it. You know, Liz, uh, you've got these Republican senators who have abandoned the idea of consumer impact and are just kind of going after the tech companies because of their politics. Now, in a sense, um, once again, Elon Musk is a hero because from the marketplace and investment, he's just going to take over Twitter. He's moving along nicely and he's going to give provide free speech. Now, that could launch a revolution with these other companies, too. But, Liz, why would you want government? This is the part that really bothers me. Government in charge of breaking up companies. Markets, yes. Governments, really? Well, I I mean, I think Steve's right. It comes down to politics. I think that uh, people like Josh Hawley are so offended by the political influence of companies like Google and Apple and so forth that they are willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they, mm. it, this is not about economic power, I don't think. Uh, these companies have enormous economic power. And I do think they need to have uh, stricter guidelines in terms of protecting privacy. We know that uh, mm-hmm. they haven't really abided by any kind of yeah. uh, rules of the road on this. And let's face it, Europe is way ahead of us in making demands about how that how your personal information should be treated, stored, etc. Uh, and these companies have over and over again violated those rules. We also know that these companies are uh, providing, particularly Facebook, I think, uh, are injurious to a lot of people. You know, teenage girls, it's pretty well known, are really uh, harmed by their uh, devotion to being online. I don't know 
really how that can be handled because that is a choice of the parents and the children that get involved in these networks. But I do think it's it, it, they, these senators are not interested in the economic ramifications or sort of economic mm-hmm. justification. I think they want to hurt the herders, uh, and they view those companies as exactly that. Steve Moore, let me switch gears. Um, Dave McCormick has conceded mm-hmm. the Senate race yep. in Pennsylvania yep. to Emmett Oz. Yep. Um, yep. Can Oz win? Uh, he's going to run against the lieutenant governor, uh, Fetterman, who I think is a big lefty. Can we yep. keep that seat in Pennsylvania? Can Oz do it? Is is Oz a supply sider? I mean, what is he? Well, first of all, he is going to win that race. He is going to win. And and congratulations, by the way, to Dave McCormick. I know he's yeah. a friend of yours. I met yep. him once. Or two. I mean, he, he ran a, cl- a, a race Classic. with great class, yeah. and he, he showed a lot of class. By I think he lost by, what, 1,000 votes out of, I don't know how many. A million One and a half million. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, out of, you know, so it was a very, very narrow loss. Uh, but uh, I wish Donald Trump had <laughs> done the same thing. And I think be, <laughs> he, he, he the country would be better shape. But um, yeah, no, I think Dr. Oz is a good candidate. Uh, now, I don't know. You asked me about his economics. I don't know. We, you and I and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes and uh, Liz have to sit down with him and, and, and make sure he's sound on these things. But he's a good candidate. And I think he'll do well. I'd love Liz's ideas. But I think he appeals to the suburban women, mm. um, which is a big thing, you know, because Trump lost Pennsylvania because of the, you know, the suburban women who abandoned him. But I, I think he's non-threatening. I think he's got his head on his shoulders. He's a, and uh, he probably needs a little coaching on the economy. I think that's right. I, I actually had dinner with him and had a chance to talk to him about things that are important to all of us. And look, first of all, he is a very smart, very capable guy. Uh, he was not just a TV personality. He was also a really successful, eminent surgeon uh, doctor before he became involved in TV. And as to winability and so forth, one of the reasons I think a lot of people I know backed him is that he has tremendous approval amongst black voters because of his long-term association with Oprah Winfrey. In mm. fact, Oprah, I think, offered to help his campaign, and he rightly said no because he was afraid it would probably hurt her uh, and their friends. So I think, uh, you know, in, in places like Philadelphia, that's going to be important for him. Um, as to his economics, look, I think like a lot of people who come from the private sector, he does not have well-formed political views on a lot of issues. And I think the economy, I think his instincts are good. Uh, to your point, Steve, I think some coaching is is probably a good idea on a number of things, but I think he can win this race. Well, with Trump, I mean, I think where you go on this, Steve, with Trump being his big backer and perhaps decisively in this campaign, uh, he should go, you know, campaign on making the Trump tax cuts permanent. And show the success of the tax cuts. I mean, particularly the corporate tax cuts. And I, I think Oz is fundamentally a private sector kind of guy who would yes. promote private sector investment. So I would start there, make the Trump tax cuts permanent. And look, in Pennsylvania, which successfully handled the uh, fracking revolution, unlike uh, New York, for example, um, you know, Oz should be deregulated deregulate energy, deregulate business, deregulate industry. And I think he'll carry the day with that. I think that's where you go with him, Steve. You raised a really good point, by the way, on the energy issue, because 
you know, Pennsylvania really was one of the biggest beneficiary states of the shale revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that Marcella shale. By the way, when is New York going to start drilling? My God, the Pennsylvanians took all the, you know, keep drilling on, right on that border to take all the, you know, they're going down and underneath New York and taking their own oil and gas <laughs> They're <out>. horizontally <laughs> drilling under New York State. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's That's funny. One of the issues in, in, in Pennsylvania is that this um, governor, Wolf, he actually wants to get the Pennsylvania into this lunatic called, called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is mm. just a big carbon tax. And I wrote a column on this. Wait a minute. Pennsylvania is like the, one of the biggest sources of uh, energy in our country right now. Why would they slit their wrists and join this stupid path with, country, with states like New York and Connecticut, New Jersey, and Rhode Island? Mm. And so I think that uh, Oz would be very smart because I know you're, this station reaches into Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, yeah, these yeah. Democrats are all in on this stuff, and it will destroy a lot of jobs in that state. Liz, um are you still optimistic about the cavalry coming in November? That- <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the primaries have shown even more data points on the fact that Republican energy is up, their enthusiasm, their turnout, all the things that you want to see. There are tens of thousands of people re-registering as Republicans in some mm-hmm. of these states. Now, mind you, in some states, that's because they want to uh, mess up the Republican primaries. Uh, Democrats have a nice, nasty habit of doing that. But I think there's a lot of uh, indications that things are going the right way. And I hate to say that a lot of it is because the nation is going the wrong way. When 75 percent or whatever the number is now says the country's on the wrong track, they want to change. They don't want to continue on that wrong track. And I think you're going to see those people come out and vote uh, in November. I sure as heck hope so, Larry, because things are not getting better. I think they're getting worse on so many fronts. Um, and it's it's policy. It is not. Uh, I mean, I, I what I was offended. I was offended by Janet Yellen's non-apology because she basically kind of said, well, you know, lightning struck. And what do you know? We have inflation. No, that's not appropriate. Uh, right. And right. That's immaculate. Yeah, immaculate, I mean, exactly. immaculate, immaculate conception. Right. Yeah, that's where it came right. from. Immaculate, <laughs> you know. immaculate inflation. I like that. I may have to steal that, Larry. Uh, all right. It's all okay. yours. We yeah, got to jump, kids. We got to jump. Liz Peak, thank you ever so much. Steve Moore, thank you ever so much. Thank I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We will see you again next weekend.